This is Bioflash. The focus for us has always been do great science with great people and focus on patients. The real mission is to say we're curing 20%. How do we make that 40? How do we make that 60? If you can't change clinical practice in a way that improves outcomes for patients and lowers the cost of care, you may as well not start. Part of being at a small startup biotech company is how quickly we can, we can move. If Roche can buy Genentech, if Pfizer can buy Wyeth, any motivated party can buy anybody else. Welcome to BioFlash, the podcast about the San Francisco Bay Area's biotech ecosystem. I'm Ron Ludy, the biotech reporter at the San Francisco Business Times. In this episode of BioFlash, we talk to Nick Naclerio, the founding partner of Illumina Ventures. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it's an outgrowth of Illumina Inc., the well-known developer of life sciences tools such as DNA sequencers. Nick actually was the senior vice president of corporate and venture development for Illumina, where he was able to spot several up-and-coming companies. But that was only part of Nick's overall responsibilities, which included buying and selling companies and doing licensing deals, all things you'd expect in a BD department. We'll let Nick tell the story from here, but the need he spotted led to a first Illumina Ventures fund of $230 million focused on early stage companies with applications in genomics and precision medicine. That cuts across life sciences, tools, clinical diagnostics, therapeutics, and more than a half dozen companies so far. So we talked to Nick about the risks, finding good companies at the rate of three or four every year, and scientific passion. Enjoy. So tell me a little bit about Illumina Ventures. Um, Tell me what the, what the backbone is, and, and you as a founder of Illumina Ventures, what you're trying to accomplish. Okay. Um, so I was you know the head of corporate development at Illumina for the last six years, and we did venture investing along with other things, but it was never the most urgent priority. So a year and a half ago, I, I went to uh, the leadership at Illumina and proposed that as sort of the next phase of my career, I would like to set up a fund, and perhaps Illumina would, would back me to do that. And fortunately, they, they agreed. And so last summer, we announced that Illumina made a $100 million commitment to this fund, as it turns out, we had very strong interest in the fund. We ended up uh, raising a total of $230 million. Illumina was enthusiastic about that and very supportive. Uh, so, so now we have, a, I think, a nice size fund for, for doing what we want to do. In terms of the focus of the fund, um, you know, all of us involved in the fund come from the genomics and precision medicine space. That's what we're passionate about. That's what we understand. And so that's what, that's what we want to invest in. We want to build the companies that are... Uh, taking advantage of the revolution in genomics to, to create new applications, mostly in healthcare. Or in a few cases, there are things that are, that are you know, completely outside of healthcare. Like we have one investment in uh, a company that's uh, trying to improve oil and gas exploration using DNA in the soil. So I always view, and maybe it's an oversimplification, 
of Illumina as a tools company. It sounds like Illumina Ventures is is beyond that. I mean, that's certainly a segment that you're looking at, but um, is there any tie-in with Illumina? I mean, that Illumina says, hey, invest in those companies because we would like to put them onto our platform. Right. Uh, not really. Uh, I started doing venture investing while I was still at Illumina, and there the the motivation was to find and support the companies that are going to kind of create create future demand for Illumina's products. So, for example, while at Illumina, we invested in 23andMe, which is a direct-to-consumer. We invested in non-invasive prenatal testing. We invested in carrier screening. These were uh, applications that would grow to be big users of sequencing eventually. Um, and with that kind of focus, uh, it turns out our fund had a pretty good rate of return. So what now our focus is first, you know, priority is rate of return, but it's, again, we're, we're still uh, leveraging that same sort of hy- investment hypothesis, that, that this is an area undergoing rapid change and evolution, and that 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 uh, the advances in DNA sequencing are making things possible that just weren't even conceivable a few years ago. Yeah. So when you're going out and you raise $130 million from other partners, is there a common DNA running through those other partners? Um, and what kind of questions were they asking as, as you're putting this together? Sure. Well, they're all people who want to make money in, a, in a <laughs> private equity. Always a common and, DNA. Uh, they sort of share our belief that uh, this this particular area we're investing in is is a is a good area for investment right now. The types of investors about a quarter of them are other corporate investors. Uh, a quarter of them are uh, purely financial institutions like university endowments, and then uh, I think about ten ten or eleven percent are individuals, high net worth individuals, family offices. Mostly, they're people who uh, are either made their money in in the pharmaceutical or biotech industry, or they're tech VCs who want to diversify into uh, some having some of their assets in in uh, life sciences. What is the common thread of? I think I counted seven investments, eight if you count twenty three and me, going back just before Illumina Ventures. What's the common thread? There, would you say? Again, there are either companies that are kind of taking advantage of the the advances in the sequencing capability or the explosion of information that's resulting from having so much sequencing available, or there are companies that are kind of in that ecosystem that are upstream or downstream of the sequencing that are sort of helping make make this this exponential growth possible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, examples of that would be companies that are sort of, for example, developing uh, better ways to uh, extract and purify DNA to go into a sequencer. Mm-hmm. And, and then on, on another end, there are the more consumer, like companies 23andMe, uh, Genome Medical, Right. Um, I, I noticed. Um, do you have to watch out for, though... Um, for almost too much giddiness in approaching this from a tech side? Well, um, you know, I, I think with every opportunity we look at, uh, we have to evaluate the, the business um, potential and the, the, the exit value for the company. So, um, 
it's true that in, in some areas there's there's too much frothiness, there's too much excitement, and the valuations are too high. And so even though we see interesting companies, we might say, well, I, I, I'd love to invest there, but the valuations are just so high because everyone else is excited about the same area. It's right. unlikely we're going to get a good return. In life science investment, the, the bulk of the money goes into companies developing therapeutics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's not our primary focus. Um, some of the, the companies we've talked about in the tools or diagnostic space are a little less in favor right now with investors. Uh, we're syndicating with these other investors as well, so it's not like we're going it alone. You know, in any field, I think if, in venture investing, you have to be sort of disciplined to to not get overly excited about the technology right. and 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 be disciplined about valuation and, and business model. With that being said, what are you most excited about right now? Uh, I'll talk about a few themes. Uh, so we've made a couple of investments um, in what you might call gene writing. So if you think about Illumina has revolutionized the reading of genes, um, there hasn't been an equivalent revolution in the writing of genes. So while uh, it's about a million times more expensive to write than to read right now. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to really revolutionize kind of biotech, then you know you have a reader and then you analyze and then you what do you do about that? Well, you'd ultimately like to be able to synthetically make another copy of a gene that, that, you, that you design. So we invested in two companies. One is called Twist Bioscience, which mm-hmm. is here uh, in San, South San Francisco, that kind of takes technology from the high-tech industry, from semiconductors and inkjet printing and microfluidic stuff, and tries to take the conventional way of making synthetic DNA uh, to, to a much more industrial scale. So they miniaturize it, they massively make it massively parallel, they automate it. So it's a sort of super high throughput way to make genes using the pretty much the same chemistry that everyone's always used. And then a uh, second investment we made was in a company in France uh, called DNA Script, uh, which is instead of uh, trying to make the DNA the way everyone else makes it, they're making DNA the way a cell makes DNA. So they're using enzymes to assemble the bases the same way your cell would assemble the bases when it's when it's replicating. And that has the potential to be much more environmentally friendly, much more accurate, faster, cheaper. And so the two approaches are complementary because if one's kind of like the hardware and the other's like the operating system, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You, you could multiply the two together at the end. So, uh, so that's one area. And then more broadly, uh, so if you have reading, writing, there's been a lot of talk about CRISPR, which is editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, allows you to change small bits of DNA. Um, we're excited about that area. We haven't made an investment yet. And then uh, the the fourth element of that cycle is probably, we, we say, maybe executing the DNA. So, you know, your DNA, if you think of it as like a programming language, the, the computer it runs on is a cell. And so when you change DNA, then you have to put it in a living cell and, and run it and, and to have something happen. And so there are companies looking at uh, what they call cell-free expression, the ability to sort of test out or debug your, your DNA program without having to put it in a living cell. You were talking about twist, and, and one of the interesting and, and kind of giddy things, at least from a reporting perspective, is their ability, and they've done some of these experiments, of storing data in the DNA. You know, that's kind of a cool thing to do, um, but what... 
what is a company like that learning in the process and, and not just having fun with, with the creation? Yeah. No, no, it's not just for fun. Yeah. Uh, so, again, if you think of DNA as like a programming language or something, um, you can encode information in it. It's a four-base code instead of a two-base code like like binary data, which means you can store twice as much information per bit. Um, and it's uh, it lasts a very long time. I mean, we, we can get DNA out of dinosaur bones and, and still read it. Yeah. So yeah. it's not like the floppy disk that you stored stuff on, maybe, and uh, now you don't have a computer to read it anymore. So uh, companies uh, in the cloud business and the in the data storage business are seriously interested in this for archival storage. And so what if instead of storing all those things on tape drives and hard drives, you could just store them on DNA? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a serious business opportunity that people are looking at. And Twist is working with a number of the leading companies in the cloud and data storage business on this. So somebody like Twist would be writing the DNA and then, then you'd use like sequencers like Illumina makes to, to read it. And so those are the things that get you excited. And, and, and frankly, the twist thing really is kind of a, it's a very exciting, you know, application of the technology. But what brings concerns to you is this moving too quickly, for example. From a societal point of view. Yeah, right? from a societal point of view or, or even from an investment point of view of, whoa, we have an opportunity to get in this. But is this too, you know, whatever that business is, is it too early to mm. get into this? Uh, okay, so let me take the two questions separately, yeah. right? From a societal point of view, I, I think uh, the concern that a number of people have expressed is that um, when all this bioengineering becomes too easy, you know, what might people do with it? And I think uh, some people have, have raised the, made the prediction that you know, whereas a 15-year-old today knows how to program in Java, right? A 15-year-old, you know, 10 years from now will probably know how to do genetic engineering. And so instead of a hackathon, you know, where they're trying to write a computer to code to make a cool video game, they'll be sitting around, you know, messing with DNA trying to make a cool organism. You know, a glow-in-the-dark <laughs> bug or whatever, whatever. And the, the concern is that inadvertently or intentionally, someone creates a pathogen that, that becomes a threat to human life. So hopefully, uh, in parallel with the, you know, as the tools get better and better, hopefully we'll also get better and better at, at uh, being able to make vaccines and detect when things are dangerous and you know, those sorts of things. But, but there is a bit of uh, uh, risk in that. Uh, that that I think uh, over the very long term, you know, we have to be aware of. Uh, but for the most part, the applications that people are pursuing are are, I, I think, very good for society. Right? I mean, the the real promise here is is uh, um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, precision medicine, uh, uh, doing a much better job understanding uh, what's going on uh, in various diseases being able to get people on the right drug that's going to improve their, their condition more quickly, extending human life and the quality of life. That's the real promise. And I think, um, you know, it's really exciting. That's what gets me excited is, is working with companies that are making a meaningful difference. 
Um, Illumina Ventures moving forward, $230 million fund. How much of that is used, uh, if I can put it in simplistic terms, so far? And, um, you know, when, when do you go out and start raising a second fund? Well, uh, we just finished raising this fund. So we're going to take a breather. Uh, we've, we've called already uh, about 15% of the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because we have to reserve for follow-on investments in those companies, so we're probably, you know, a third of the way invested already um, when you count reserves. Um, you know, it'll be at least two or three years before we raise another fund. I think we'll see. You know, it's it's we're we're we're, um, we're opportunistic and we're disciplined about investing. So, um, you know, I can't I, I can't predict the pace at which we'll find good companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll uh, you know we, we we're trying to do to find at least uh, you know three four new good companies every year and it's just a function of of uh you know the opportunities we see does the the program through illumina the accelerator yeah does that become a source of potential it, it could what one of the companies in our portfolio actually came from the illumina accelerator huh? so the illumina accelerator uh runs a competition twice a year where they uh select uh companies uh that have uh interesting ideas and they give them uh six months of uh, you know, free rent, so to speak, in the incubator mm-hmm. and unlimited access to sequencing and access to some of the technical experts at Illumina and, and mentorship and that sort of thing. Um, and with the hope that at the end of that, they'll have the data that they need to go off and, and raise a venture capital round. So in a way, it's an, al- it's an alternative or a, a second step after that academic labs. So it's, it's another way for companies to get generated. Right. And um, of the companies that have graduated from that so far, we've invested in one of them. It's called Encoded Genomics. Okay. It's a company that's doing uh, gene therapy. So they've uh, used uh, next-gen sequencing and other genomics tools to find regulatory elements in the genome that confer tissue specificity. So and all your cells have the same... DNA in them. So how does that program, if you, again, think the DNA is like a computer program, how does it know that it's in a, in a kidney and supposed to be doing kidney function versus being in a heart and doing that? So they they've, they've found those sort of regular, those switches that are in the DNA that um, uh, make, you know, sort of specialize the, the program to the particular tissue. Uh, then the idea is you use those in a gene therapy vector. So gene therapy is the idea that you that you would, uh, let's say you were, you're a hemophiliac. So you were born uh, with a with a um, deficiency in a in a gene called factor eight. Um, so uh, the idea of gene therapy is that you would be able to give that patient a virus that would carry with it uh, a corrected factor eight gene and uh, you don't want that factor eight gene, the corrected factor eight gene, going into every cell in your body and expressing factor eight. You only want it in certain places. So the idea is these these regulatory elements that they've discovered could be combined into those vectors to give tissue specificity. And uh, so that's kind of a platform company. They're working on a number of, of different applications of that in gene therapy and partnering with, with other pharmaceutical companies who are trying to develop gene therapies. One of the other companies we've invested in that we didn't talk about is uh, Calliope. Mm-hmm. So another, uh, you know, you, you asked me, I think, at the beginning about microbiome. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. 
So we haven't done any microbiome investments yet, but um, there is a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And so we have one investment in a company called Calliope that's um, looking at the connection between your stomach and, and your brain. So you, you know, somebody probably told you when you were a kid or something, you know, ways, what is it, the way, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach? <laughs> well, it turns out the way to a, man, to a person's brain is through their stomach. Interesting. That, that your stomach has more surface area, the, the lining of your gut, than the outside of your body by a factor of quite a lot, 50 or 100, because of all the folds and, you know, yeah, backs yeah. and forths. And it's covered, it's a sensory organ, it's covered with chemical receptors. And so things like your craving for salt or sugar or thirst uh, or your appetite uh, are, log- makes sense that they're, they're controlled by this. But also we're finding out that uh, your mood, uh, neurological disease like Parkinson's are influenced by things that are going on in your gut. So this company is using some very cutting-edge technology to to identify all the different sort of chemical receptors in the gut and then map their connections to different functions in the brain with the idea that a new class of drugs will be uh, oral drugs that stay in your stomach. They don't have to go into your bloodstream, but they'll bind to these various receptors uh, in your gut. And they could affect your mood, your appetite, your metabolism, uh, all sorts of things. So it's kind of a workaround from trying to get the drug into the bloodstream and to take care of something, you know, have it go to the kidney, for example. Exactly. Staying to the, in the stomach and just having the signal go exactly. to the brain. Exactly. And it's, wow. yeah, especially compared to trying to get a drug into the brain, since the brain is a kind of privileged space. Yeah. Uh, so if you can get there through this vagal nerve that goes from your stomach up to your, up to your brain, then, uh, then that could be much safer. And it sounds like that has so many applications to diet, weight loss, if you will, or weight sure. control, um, but also you know, diabetes, um, Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease. disease. Yeah. So there's I mean, recent there's recent wow. evidence that shows that uh, um, you know without without certain bacteria in the gut, uh, mice won't develop Parkinson's even if they. Um, uh, even if they've they've had a transgene put in that sort of would normally give them Parkinson's syndrome symptoms, so there's something going on in the gut. We don't really know what that's that's necessary. So it's not necessarily causing Parkinson's, but it's necessary for the Parkinson's symptoms to develop. So if you can figure out what that signal is, right, right. and then block it with a drug in the gut, you know, we might be able to uh, delay the development of Parkinson's. Wow. So this is all, of course. Still very very early in in the research space, yeah. But it it again what we like about Calliope is it's a it's a big platform. So they're 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 understanding uh, an aspect of human physiology that we haven't been able to understand before. They're using tools that didn't exist three years ago, single cell sequencing in this case, um, and so we think it'll provide insights across a whole range of different applications, and hopefully some of those will lead to sort of you know, major therapeutic advances. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of BioFlash. Be sure to follow our daily coverage of the Bay Area's biotech industry at sanfranciscobusinesstimes.com. And you can follow me and give me your feedback and tips on Twitter at rludy, that's R-L-E-U-T-Y underscore biotech. 
BioFlash is produced by Kevin Trong.